Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 23. The Great Divorce Retrospective. Friends, welcome to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast, where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together, unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis, and discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity. We are currently in Season 2, in unlocking the treasures hidden within our favorite C.S. Lewis work, The Great Divorce. My name is Matt, and as always, I am joined by my co-host and friend, David, whom I'm very grateful for being able to complete another incredible journey with him as we reflect on our time going through The Great Divorce today. Yeah, there is something really nice when we reach the end point of any book. It's that wonderful sense of satisfaction. And I feel like it's probably a bit more for you than me, since you have to put in about three times the work every week that I have to put in. Uh, I'd probably say four or five, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) But as we do, we're going to go through this retrospective. These are my favorite episodes. They're a wonderful chance to recap what we've learned. They're also a great chance, listeners, to be able to send to friends to share with the podcast because they can just, this is a good episode to send as a one-off. And as we go through this, let's begin by just I want to say, David, thank you for all your time, your commitment, and what you do to make this possible. And I know the listeners are very appreciative to all the ums and the ahs and the spaces (laughs) and the messed up sentences that you cut out to allow this to be smooth and free-flowing and and very uh, to the point. And thank you for providing me with all of those opportunities to perfect my skills. I am glad to help. (laughs) I'm always here as long as you need me, David. Well, before we get on with a toast, uh, we should have a quote of the week. And to wrap up this book, rather than offering a quotation from the current chapter, since we've just finished the book, I actually thought we'd end with a quotation not from Lewis, but from his master, George MacDonald. This is from his book, Unspoken Sermons. And just as an aside, they're unspoken sermons because MacDonald kept getting into trouble for what he was preaching. But here's what he says in the sermon, The Last Farthing. No, there is no escape. There is no heaven with a little of hell in it. No plan to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out Satan must go, every hair and feather. Oh, that's going to fit perfectly with my first point. (laughs) Well, before you give us your first point, what are you drinking? I am am out of alcohol and I didn't go to the store, which isn't a bad thing. (laughs) So I am drinking an herbal tea, a lemon ginger zinger flavor. That's very nice. Well, I am also on the tea today. Uh, I have Irish breakfast tea, which is actually my favorite kind of tea. But don't tell the English because I should really like English breakfast more. But I think Irish breakfast doesn't have a dry aftertaste. And I also have yet another Bundaberg ginger beer on standby just to keep me going through to the end. (laughs) Well, fantastic. Cheers. Cheers. How was your week, David? Uh, It was great. One thing that made me look at my computer screen and shout, what? <laughs> uh, you haven't read The Magician's Nephew, have you? No. Well, But that should be the first one I read, obviously. N- absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, but there's a dedication in that book, and it says, To the Kilmer family. And at the beginning of the year, when I read C.S. Lewis's Letters to Children, I noticed that he wrote to some Kilmer children. Well, I saw on Facebook that the letters to those children, the letters that C.S. Lewis wrote to this family in America, were going on sale. And 
I realised something. Remember my friend Meg Hunter Kilmer? Those were her aunts and uncles. Wait, that name's really familiar. I've spoken about her on the podcast before. She's a really good speaker. If you Google Hobo for Christ, she oh, basically yes. travels around speaking and that's her life. That's it. Uh, the 29 letters that the family are selling. So I was kind of tempted to start a GoFundMe to raise the $110,000 that it's going to cost for me to own these letters. I feel like if you're going to be able to justify a GoFundMe, you need to put it into some sort of 501c3 for public access. Well, it's funny. I was actually doing a few back-of-the-napkin calculations to work out how much liquid cash could I actually get? Could I theoretically buy these? (laughs) (laughs) I would look at it as an investment into your salvation. What kind of price can you put on that? I mean, that's a high ROI. Oh, that's sounding very Pelagian. Um, I'm not quite sure if it's my salvation, but uh, certainly personal happiness and satisfaction. But the other thing that happened this past week is I was on the Reason and Theology podcast. And I didn't get to speak too much about Lewis, which was a bit sad, but I did get to talk about him a good deal in terms of theosis. I'll have to watch that. You should. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had, uh, we had a really good chat with the co-hosts, and I've known actually all of them through lots of very random connections. Uh, I actually helped them get there, because it was originally started as a YouTube channel, and I always want to consume things as a podcast, so... I helped them get it onto MP3 and set up a podcast feed. Were they quite familiar with the concept theosis? Oh, yes, because they're all very well schooled in theology. Uh, And actually, one of the co-hosts is Eastern Orthodox. And the one who's Roman Catholic, I actually met him at a come and see discernment weekend for the priesthood at the Eastern Seminary. Oh, small world. Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's an even smaller world, actually, because the guy who's Eastern Orthodox, he and I had clashed swords a few times on the internet and had written response articles to one another. And uh, so, yeah, so now we we, we got to sort of meet in person. It was wonderful. Did you you hash these things out, continue your conversation? Uh, We did sort of, but the, the thing is, the things we were disputing over were back when he was Protestant. Ah. And... Since becoming Eastern Orthodox, th- those aren't the issues anymore. <laughs> I was going to say, the only issues I could think of are mainly the papal infallibility and the hierarchy of the church. Yeah, you can, you can spend some more issues out of it, but, but yeah. no, it's, I would definitely recommend to any, any listener who really wants to dig into slightly heavier theology, as well as church history, their, their podcast is really good. They have some very, very smart people on there. Every, every now and again on an episode, I just have to give up. It's like, okay, this is beyond me. <laughs> Wow, if you're saying that, that's saying something. They just have some very smart guests and they deal with some uh, very in-depth topics at times. So why'd they have you on? The accent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, shall we jump into the chapter? There is no chapter. (laughs) Shall we jump into the episode? So we asked this question last time we did a retrospective for mere Christianity, but this time, what do you think was different about going through the Great Divorce in public and over several months. So the f- the first time I went through it, the the choice of accepting God's will versus your will that was very evident to me. Even back when I read it, with a lot less theological knowledge, this time around, the step after that, 
after you say yes to God's will, that sanctification process, that purging process, that journey, essentially the theosis that you really see played out, how painful that can be because you're letting go of your will. That stuck out to me much more because of mere Christianity and having read about theosis before this. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, the fact that we've gone through more of Lewis's stuff and more slowly means that we can make connections between his other works. And his more didactic stuff really informs things like the Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce. And I'd also say the fact that we're going through more slowly means not only do we get to make more connections, but we have more of an opportunity to wrestle with the hard parts of the book. Because when you're just reading a book for reading's sake, you can skip through the the tougher parts or just read through them and not concentrate. But when we know we're going to have to be chatting for 45 minutes, we actually have to go and deal with those things as well as we have motivation, or at least apparently I have motivation to go and look up what some (laughs) of the obscure references are. Things like who actually is Sir Archibald? Who is MacDonald talking about when he's saying that he doesn't want Lewis to be another Vale Owens? And I I must say, you just mentioned how going through it chapter by chapter forced you to go deeper than you normally would. The listeners don't realize that was very much pushed by David because in the beginning of The Great Divorce, I said to him, I thought, you know, this would be a book that we don't go chapter by chapter, but instead I envisioned maybe the first episode being 45 minutes setting the backstage, probably covering the first few chapters. And then you do a chapter per ghost, whether it's broken up in one or two chapters, and then an episode bringing it full circle. And I liked how we did it this way, uh, which is the usual way. It's not as if we switched it up, but you're right. It does force you to really dig into it. I was just convinced that there was a lot there to talk about. I didn't think that we would find ourselves twiddling our thumbs, trying to come up with something to say. I mean, I when I'm editing the episodes, I have to work very hard to get it under 45 minutes. And it's almost always 44 minutes and 40-odd seconds. That's typically what I seem to work it out to. I love it. But having said that, in next season, when we do Till We Have Faces, then we will be grouping chapters. I will be reading the book itself in the next couple of weeks, and we'll then hash out how many chapters we'll do an episode. One other thing that I've really liked about this season is I think we've had even more listener interaction. And as you remember the guy that we referred to the last time you and I were together recording, RSS1179? Yeah, oh yeah, I remember that. Uh, he sent me a message saying that he's actually started a book club with his friends and they go through a chapter of The Great Divorce every week. <laughs> and he said, along with reading the book, we also listen and discuss your podcast. Oh my goodness. In the first episode, or first season of Mere Christianity, I knew someone else from my hometown that was doing something similar, where they were taking it chapter by chapter uh, in, in using our podcast and discussing it. So maybe at some point, David, we will have to make a companion guide. Well, I actually got to send him all of my notes, because when we went through The Great Divorce in our San Diego book club, I had a summary of each chapter. It was probably about half a page for each chapter with the select quotations, you know, those, the, those really important lines, as well as discussion questions. And so I had all of those in PDF form, so I sent them to him. Wow, that's quite generous. Did you charge him? <laughs> freely you have received, freely give. <laughs> <laughs> Such a saint, David. Yeah, that's me. But no, I, I actually do quite like the idea at some point 
finding out the legality and actually maybe putting together perhaps an ebook. I think this is a great idea. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so how has it changed you? Uh, going through the great divorce, I think it now means that there's another of Lewis's books, which I can vociferously quote in every conversation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As if that doesn't happen enough. Uh, yeah, but still going through a book slowly, it, it hammers it home in my brain. Um, doctrinally, I, I think it's really helped me feel more at peace with the doctrine of hell. You know, that's a doctrine that I know a lot of Christians do struggle with. But I think reading this book has made me feel more comfortable in articulating it to people in terms that they would find more sympathetic. I've probably used this to explain the concept of hell to people more than any other theology book that I've read on it, because it, it is a very tough thing for people to believe that God can send you to hell under these fiery hells. And if he's a good God and a loving God, how can he do this? But it's very easy to explain He's a good God that created free will that allows love and allows us to freely choose it. And he respects that decision because if he didn't respect it, it wouldn't be free will. That makes a lot of sense to people. And this was actually even something that Lewis himself struggled with. Uh, this past week, I was going through the problem of pain. And Lewis himself says, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of scripture and specifically of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. If the happiness of a creature lies in self-surrender, no one can make that surrender but himself, though many can help him to make it. But he may refuse. I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, all will be saved. But my reason retorts, without their will or with it. If I say without their will... I at once perceive a contradiction. How can the supreme voluntary act of self-surrender be involuntary? If I say, with their will, my reason replies, how if they do not give in? The doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded, and are therefore self-enslaved, just as the blessed, forever submitting to obedience, become, through all eternity, more and more free. You said that's from Lewis? Yeah, it's in The Problem of Pain. The other thing I would say in terms of changing me, again, because we went through this book slowly, we kept seeing the very clear message of this book again and again and trying to apply it to my life. I think I can now see a, the, probably one of the best litmus tests for making a moral decision is by asking myself the question, is this something that I'd be willing to let keep me out of heaven? Well, and that very much relates to the first thing I was thinking of about how this changed me, appreciation of the small decisions. In the moment, it's easy to think, oh, this is no big deal. Yes, it's not great. Yes, it's a small sin, but it's not that bad. It's not that bad. But those in the grand scheme of things continue to build and it does actually change the grand scheme of things. And so I have a lot better appreciation for the small decisions and related to that the long-term thinking and exactly what you said, thinking of is this keeping me out of heaven. I now think that far ahead in what the compounding effect will have. That's, that's powerful because you now recognize the consequences are much more severe than our short-term thinking brain wants to attribute to a certain decision or a certain action. It's like somebody wanting to get into shape. 
and somebody then brings donuts to the office. If they were really serious about getting into shape, they know they need to say no to this now. But the temptation is just to think, I'll start it tomorrow. It's just one donut, or maybe two. <laughs> I'm experiencing this right now. Work's been stressful and busy, and so my, my diet plus my exercise routine are probably at the worst they've been. And I'm starting to notice the effects. You're getting a little fluffy around the uh, midsection. That's exactly right. And I've just decided I've picked up like baking chocolate chip cookies and other desserts for fun. And, (laughs) oh, this has been dangerous. (laughs) It's not good. And so I keep telling myself, it's not that bad for me. Not recognizing, yeah, of course, but if I continue this for another three months, this will be really bad. Let's get to the part that I'm really looking forward to which is where we talk about the main themes and ideas that popped out to us, which is a really good chance for us to recap and for the listeners to to walk away with two, three, four big themes from this that, that they're equipped with in their own spiritual journey, for their own lives, their own decisions, and when they talk to others. So what are what's the first one for you? Heavenly and hellish creatures. We learned about this when we read Mere Christianity, The great divorce is really just showing us what this looks like. When somebody keeps choosing heaven and the kind of person that they become as a result, and when people choose something other than heaven and the result that happens there as well, and all of that culminating in the choice between heaven or something else and the insanity of when we choose something else. Mm, That's a good one. For me, the, the number one, that concept of thy will be done. That's really the entire culmination of the Christian journey is to you getting to the point of saying that completely. It's not as if you can say, God, I accept 95% of you in your will. And I keep 5% of mine. It's not as if you can go 99-1. Do you remember in Mere Christianity, Lewis said that we treat God like our taxes sometimes. And so far as We'll give him attention maybe once a year, (laughs) and we will view all of our time and our resources and everything we have as we need to give God his due, and then once once we've paid him off, once we've done our taxes, the rest of it is ours to do as we see fit. And that's the exact opposite mindset of this. Yeah. And I want to give David Clark, the author of the book, C.S. Lewis Goes to Heaven, a bit of credit here. But I like how he puts... I'd give him a lot of credit. That's a really good book. It's an incredible book. I mean, this is actually, as I was going through this retrospective, he did a very good job helping summarize it, for me particularly. He discussed how this idea of all or nothing is exactly what Lewis meant by the great divorce. There can be no marriage between heaven and hell, which is another way of looking at it is you can't keep a little part of hell and bring it to heaven. It is completely separate. There is absolutely no marriage between the two. And he actually goes a step further and said, the only actual marriage that happens is our will to the will of God's. I really liked how he wrote that. And related to that, we've we've often come back to the Augustinian idea of what evil is, that it's a a misuse and a perversion. And what we see in The Great Divorce is when people have their twisted versions of love in particular that will be sending them back to hell, or at least making them want to choose hell instead of heaven, rather than reorienting their loves appropriately and being able to therefore love more because they have love of God 
orienting and powering all of these other kinds of love. In that reordering, as we see in here, is going back to your heavenly and hellish creatures, is a result of a series of choices. And they're very little choices, but they build. And that's just incredible to think about. If, if, and that's why Lewis, remember he mentioned this in Mere Christianity, that this is why Christians are so vigilant of the small sins. Mm-hmm. It's because they're going to build and eventually uh, either get to the point where, like you talked about, having that true love, that desire for God or not. And here it's probably worth pointing out to anybody who, say, has just started listening to this episode and they haven't listened to any of our earlier episodes. This doesn't mean that God won't accept us until we've got our lives together and have extracted all of the the sin and the bad choices from our lives. In mere Christianity, Lewis spends a little bit of time meditating upon Jesus' words when he says, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says it doesn't mean that we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to reach that moral perfection. But rather, it's saying that if you invite Christ into your life, if you orient your will to his, he will make you nothing less than perfect. Mm. Well, that's related to a quote that's, uh, I can't remember where, uh, but David Clark put it in, and it's from C.S. Lewis. Actually, you know, it's in one of his collected letters. He goes, but though freedom is real, it is not infinite. Every choice reduces a little one's freedom to choose the next time. There, therefore, becomes a time when the creature is fully built, irrevocably attached either to God or to itself. Wow, think about that. Your freedom will eventually go away when you get to either one end of the extremes or the other, to the point where your will is completely aligned with God's. You freely chose it, but there will become a point where you're no longer choosing. You're just so aligned to it. Or you are so far gone that there's no small redeemable part of you. I would couch the explanation of that just a little bit differently. I would say if you choose God's will, your will becomes conformed to his. In terms of you can see good for itself and you therefore naturally want to choose that. And it is therefore in symphony with God's own choices. But I would say in the other direction, that's where you lose your free will. Because you give yourself over to something else. So just say at the basic natural bodily level, if I keep giving in to my natural bodily urges, my body is controlling me and not the other way around. And there will come a point where there's not a whole lot of me left to even try and battle my body. I've given the example of a drug addict before. In the early stages of his drug taking, he might still have some self-control left. But if that allows to degenerate, He'll be entirely driven by the drug and by his body's demands for that drug. Mm. His own will, his own ability to fight it will be greatly diminished. Today, we have a very misguided idea of what freedom is. We think of freedom is being able to do whatever I want. Whereas in the medieval mind, no, freedom is the ability to do what you should, what you ought to actually be able to do it. And if we are just doing whatever we want, we actually lose our freedom because again we're being we're being pushed about by the winds of fashion or change or our own bodily desires and let me give you an analogy with that because i'm i'm experiencing this right now in a from a professional perspective i want to be even more productive in my day i want to be able to concentrate longer be focused for longer periods of time uh, be more creative it's it's what i need for my job and 
doing that brings me a sense of peace, reduces my anxiety and brings me joy. Well, what happens when you get sucked into media, TV, YouTube, all of this stuff is you're doing, you're, you're doing what you want to some degree, but it's actually preventing you from freely choosing what you ought to do. Like it's actually tough in a day to focus for hours and hours and hours and hours without your brain being like, I need to check this. I need to Google this. I need to you know, watch this YouTube video, do this. I mean, these distractions have become so ingrained in us that we've lost the freedom to do what we know we should be doing. Or with diet, you eat so unhealthy, you lose the freedom to choose what's actually good for you. I mean, this is that same concept. Is, is someone putting a bunch of food in front of you, telling you eat whatever junk food you want, actually really freeing? I don't know. And actually, I do know. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> There's a wonderful line in the Screwtape letters where Screwtape refers to one of his earlier patients whom he managed to bring to hell. And the patient laments, saying that he did neither what he should have done, nor actually what he even enjoyed. When I read that recently, it made me think of someone who has spent hours scrolling on Instagram or Facebook, just wasting their life away. They would, they would say that this is sort of what they want to be doing, but at the end of it, no, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> the endless feeds. But with this sanctification, though, this sickening process, I also really loved that as a big reminder is that it's not a removal, you know, as, as Lewis points out here with the lizard, it's not a removal of evil. You know, as you're sanctifying yourself, you're reordering your loves. Picky point, as God's grace is sanctifying yourself and you're cooperating with it. That's a very good, I'm glad you did that. As God's grace sanctifies us and we're yielding to it, which is another one of my sub points was the fact that we have to yield to the sanctification process continuously. It's a removal or it's not a removal of evil, but a transformation of just a disordered love into a beautiful love. Lust, it wasn't removed. It was it was the desire re- transformed. It was transformed into the most beautiful thing. And it had to die first. It had to die first. And that's really important because in our spiritual journeys, shame is very dangerous. And so imagine you're someone, and I, there's probably plenty of people struggling with this in our listeners, and David, you and I probably have, uh, I have, you probably have, lust itself. I mean, that's a really good example here. And shame can be very dangerous with that. And when you recognize that what God's going to do is transform this, that there is some good desire in here that's just wrong ordered, that reduces the amount of shame that you feel because you realize, okay, there's an energy, there's a desire here that's good. I'm just doing it wrong rather than this is just a a complete evil. It's like, well, yeah, there's some evil in it, but uh, that's because it's disordered. And that transformation is possible because in the story of the ghost with the lizard, what's happening? He's going back to the gray town because he's embarrassed by the lizard. So his solution to the problem of his lust is to go and hide. Whereas, as we see in the story, the real solution is for that lizard to be confronted in the form of this angel, this minister of God, to help him kill this thing and have it reborn and to actually even become his means by which he enters heaven. And that's what I think is so beautiful about the confessional and making sure you're going back every time you mess up. Don't hide because that's such a sin that you can hide and it can become self-isolating and no one knows about it. You do it in the confines of your own room and that's, that, that's dangerous in its own right. And so get to confession, 
or if you're not Catholic, at least have someone that's on a journey and confess to them. But bring it out into the light, name it, and ask for God's grace to get through this and know that he will. I mean, Lewis wasn't Catholic, but he went to confession. And I think for that very reason, you need to shine light on this stuff. Because if you just try and hide it, it's not going to get any better. Nope. And you'll just make the excuses that that ghost did. He said, oh, I'm sure the gradual process will be better. So my first point was the surrendering of the will to God. That idea of thy will be done. My second point, sanctification, and that thickening process in our role we play in yielding to that and the fact that it's a transformation, not a removal of evil. The final thing that jumped out to me is ultimate reality is tough, but it's worth it. And so the toughness came about constantly through, one, the geography, this picture that's painted of how hard it is to walk on it until you've thickened up but also through the conversations with the different individuals. You could see their pride and their ego getting in the way, and that made it hard. But I say worth it because then you get the picture of Sarah Smith at the end, and you get this glorious image of what it looks like to be thickened up, what it looks like to be in communion with God, what it looks like to, 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 to have gone through that process of sanctification. And man, that just sticks out to me. Yeah, it's a beautiful picture of what Lewis preaches in The Weight of Glory when he says it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that even the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Oh, that that, that exactly describes the Sarah Smith. But we also see why it's worth it through the counterexample. We get to see those the gray town, the isolation, the quarreling, uh, pretty much the pettiness of it. I mean, when you see that, it goes, it now becomes what you mentioned earlier that changed you through this of a much more tangible choice whenever you have these small decisions today on earth. It's like, well, I'm either going that way to the quarreling town or I'm going the other way to the journey of Sarah Smith. And what do you want? And that reminds me of Lewis's line in Mere Christianity in his chapter on hope where he says all of the terrible things in human history is man's constant attempt to find something other than God to make him happy. Yes. That's what we see in the gray town. That's what we see in each of the ghosts in the foothills of heaven. They want to be happy, but they want something other than God to be the source of that. So those were my big points. Were there any other ones that you had? Nope, no, I think we hit them all. I like how you weaved yours in nicely off of mine. (laughs) So the fun part. (laughs) I don't know. Neither of us really prepped for this, but it'd be fun to have a mini conversation on it. Well, listeners will recall that Matt and I have spoken a couple of times about, well, what if we had to write ourselves into the great divorce? What kind of a ghost would we be? What would be our reason for turning down heaven? Why would we go back to the gray town? Should we use Marie first so that way to 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 bridge this divide and work our way into this yeah sure go for it well I don't remember what Marie said about you but what Marie said about me she said I am perfect I am ready <laughs> to have now and if she didn't explicitly say it vocally I know she was thinking it well we, David just wrote his chapter <laughs> for me and I thought it was spot on actually And it it stuck with me to this day. I actually think about her comments probably every few days now. 
She said that my issue would be accepting good enough. Probably that idea of I'm 95% there is the short answer. I I do tend to do that because in life I've lived this philosophy of this 80-20 rule where you get like 80% of the results with 20% of the time. And in work, in, in theology, that served me pretty well because it's allowed me to have a, a breadth of knowledge and a breadth of, of accomplishments. But there are your, your spiritual journey, the 80-20 rule absolutely does not apply. And I think about that so much now. I, I could just see myself in front of God. The Spirit comes down and says, Matt, you're almost there, but we, you know, we've got a bit more. You've got to let go of this or this or this, whatever those thises are. And I'd be like, but I... I've done so much. Aren't I there? And he goes, not yet. And there's just a few things I can't let go of. And I, I think it's good enough. Yeah, I was thinking about how that might work out in the story. And I thought of Lewis and McDonald see this person coming in. And I imagined that perhaps they might notice that you're perhaps carrying something useless for heaven, like an umbrella, because you've been used to the gray town. And this is something that you're bringing in because you know that you what you think you might need it. Or the other one was maybe some awards that you were that were given out in the gray town, or maybe some candlesticks. Maybe the fact that the conversation that you're having with your bright spirit is you're saying about the sacrifice that you made in leaving your home in the gray town that it was a beautiful house, kind of like the one that Napoleon has. Yeah, it was amazing. All I wanted to do though is I just want to bring this candelabra in with me to heaven, just as, as a little keepsake, just to remind myself that I, I gave up this big thing for God and the bright spirit trying to convince you to cast these things aside, to leave the umbrella or the awards or the candelabra. And I thought it'd be cool if, say, the something happened to them as you tried to take them into heaven. Initially, I thought, oh, maybe they could get really heavy, but that kind of is the wrong kind of logic in comparison to the realness of heaven. And we sort of did that with the ghost with the apple. So I thought maybe the, the candelabra it could either grow really hot or uh, perhaps the wax would start to melt as the, the faintest parts of the sunrise started to, to hit the candelabra. The fact that this thing can't survive the intensity of heaven. I'm first enjoying how much you've thought about this. <laughs> <laughs> Out of those, the uh, the middle one, I would say, uh, the accomplishments. The awards given to you in the great town. Uh-huh. I know this. I'm working on my false self is very much built around accomplishments and success. And that has been a big journey of mine the last couple of years is recognizing that and letting that go. And I'm the type where if I got to heaven, I... I I want to do the biggest amount of evangelization possible. Like I don't pint to Jack right now. We're reaching some, some, uh, some good amount of people, but I dream of when I'm like 50 after having built a career and hopefully a, a foundation, not for profit and stuff, reaching hundreds of millions of people. Like that's how I think I set very big dreams and goals. And I could just see myself getting to heaven with this, almost carrying this thing that said, I touched 240 million people about uh, the Christian faith, the Catholic faith. Your, your vanity wall in a bag. That's exactly right. And God would be like, you didn't do any of that. I did that through you. And I'd be like, but 
but this pain or this time where I was super stressed and I gave up this or I did this. What are you talking about? It really felt a lot like I was making these choices. And they'd be like, but what about the grace or the opportunity or the people I put here or the Davids that in the beginning did so much of this editing and stuff? And like you, you, you had nothing to do with this. Um, okay, so you had a few times where you were stressed because of it. Big whoopty freaking do. <laughs> like that's how I envision my conversation. Well, if you want to go with the awards, then perhaps it might be that as you try and take the shield or the cup into heaven, that the, the screws which attach your name to the cup keep falling out. So you keep traveling back to the gray town to bring a screwdriver and to screw them back in. But every single time you try and take these awards into heaven, your name falls off them. <laughs> your name falls off them. So I, I think that's spot on. For you, I didn't do near as much thinking, but we're going to work this one out together. Well, I, I, have, I have some thoughts as well. So do you want to go first? I, I, I want to give you, it's just going to give you high level. And I'm curious if you think this is right. Okay. Would be letting go of control. I have something that's connected to that. Okay. I, I don't know what that would look like. I don't, I'm not as creative as you are, uh, but just, just that that's, you're very, as a very intelligent individual who your, your life has taught you. You can that, stop buttering me up. Just get to the point. <laughs> well, your life has probably taught you that usually when you do things yourself, they're better than when others do them. And in a lot of my life, I could relate to that. So you just don't let go of control. You're like, you know what? I'm going to do this better. So why let someone else do this? And that can be a dangerous thing in your spiritual journey because you think you have the, you can have the best idea of your own journey or what is God's will rather than surrendering. It might be messier. It might not look like what you think it could look like. And indirectly, you could actually be rejecting God's will. And I don't know, something along those lines. (laughs) Yeah. When I was thinking about this, I concluded that one of my major faults is I very easily mistake the means for the end. That when I see that something is worth doing and is good to do, I will quite often keep doing it when it has ceased being a good thing to do, when it ceased to serve the purpose for which it was originally intended. And I can I got the example for this. Okay. The podcast could be an example of this. Okay. So the end of the podcast is very simple to share truth and to bring as many people to Christianity. But getting a three-star review or a four-star <laughs> review is Which painful. we had this past week. What I know. animal did that? <laughs> but, it, 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 if, but, but since your end is just to share truth, whether people like it or not, and in fact, if you aren't getting low reviews to some degree, you're probably not sharing truth to the right crowds because you want people to disagree with you and say, wow, this is just way off base. And that's... So you could be mistaking a bit the means and the ends here of maybe the means is now the end has become the podcast and its reputation rather than sharing truth. Yeah. And the image that I had for me in the great divorce was I would be a ghost who would perhaps just set up a tent in the foothills of heaven with the goal of helping other people carry on to the mountain. But I then never go myself. And perhaps even go back to the gray town in order to try and encourage people to to take the bus. And even so much so that I end up in the gray town when it finally becomes dark. (laughs) Way to... (laughs) I got to knock you here a little bit. Way to choose the one thing that still makes yourself sound quite good. (laughs) You mean kind of like in the interview, it's like, what do you say your greatest weaknesses? Oh, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. (laughs) My greatest weakness is I want to help other people more than myself. 
But the, thing, <laughs> but, 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 but the thing is, that's actually not the case, though. It can look like it, but it's not. It's because then my pride is tied up in what I can do, in my own ability. Because that's ultimately what I'm choosing, not actually God and heaven. There you go. That's the truth. I mean, one of the main points of Lewis's book is that good things can be twisted. As MacDonald says, brass can very easily be confused for gold. I mean, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what is the thing that I wouldn't even consider could be my downfall? I mean, think of the mother that we read about. In many ways, I'd say it's actually even sadder when something so good can become twisted and actually even become an impediment to somebody entering into joy. I was going to say, you could probably relate to the accomplished things as much as I could. I think anyone that's driven this is the immediate weakness that you have. Yeah. If you can look back on anything that you think you've achieved, you can mistakenly believe that it was all down to your good looks and brilliance. <laughs> Not God's grace, the circumstances into which you were born, and very often dumb luck. I think we navigated that very well. <laughs> How are your feelings? Are they tattered? Oh, not in the slightest. Okay. I tend to be... <laughs> When I'm ready for it, very receptive to negative feedback, but I have to be ready. When it catches me off guard, it's unsolicited. I can get very defensive, but I do recognize deep down one of my biggest mentors, Ray Dalio, not mentors, he doesn't mentor me, but one of the most successful hedge fund managers talks about you need to learn about your weaknesses to one, either overcome them or two, just surround yourself with people in business that counter those weaknesses. And that's a key to success. And so I... Uh, if you would have said some of the worst stuff to me, I would have been like, all right, I need to hear this because this determines this could help me get to heaven. And so I better let go of my ego here. Absolutely. And I mean, on on my point, I mean, I've had kind of ministry burnout a bunch of times and it's been when it's been about me. I've lost sight of what the end was. This thing, whatever it was, was started to help bring people close to God. And I've kind of lost sight of that. It's now my baby. It's the thing that defines me, the thing that makes me feel like I'm not wasting my life, that, that I'm productive and good and, well, I, you know, and, and just morally good as well, because I have to be, because I'm involved in this thing. It's a good life lesson right there. I've had that in my work, uh, because if I put the end in my work, it's about investing in the markets, and it's long-term, and so short-term, there's big fluctuations in the portfolio. You do well, you do poorly. If my end is just returns themselves rather than prudent investing, I can get burned out really quickly because it could go through multi-month, multi-quarter periods where you're not doing well. And that becomes really depressing, really tough to handle. But if your end is doing incredible work, giving your being as productive as you can, being as disciplined as you can, investing prudently, the returns will, will come or should come eventually. But you don't get as burnt out with the ups and downs swings because that's not the end. It's a quotation from St. Mother Teresa. I'm not sure if I've given it on this show before, uh, but she says, what God demands of us is our faithfulness, not necessarily success. And particularly if you look at the Old Testament prophets, fairly few of them were what you might call successful, even in terms of their own ministry. Even Jesus wasn't quite successful in his earthly ministry. From one point of view. <laughs> if your point of view is conversions pre-resurrection mm -hmm. he was not very successful he had a bit of an advantage post-resurrection 
but that's also the point of this book for us to take the long view and the long view looks even beyond this world into the next so as as we wrap this up here this retrospective chapter i want to read a quote from c.s lewis goes to heaven written by david clark who david bates will be interviewing uh, at some point here in the near future i thought he did a brilliant job summarizing this and here's what he says beneath all the landscapes characters and dialogues lies a simple complicated message the only hope of salvation complete purification and resurrection lies in god he cannot change his holy character to suit each person's demands but he will change those who allow him and he will welcome those he has changed into fellowship with one another and with him and then at last what humans were created for including the individuality of each person will find its fullest expression to our highest joy, and to his eternal glory. And he breaks it up into pointing out that the sociology part, the part of the human journey, ends with Sarah Smith portraying what a clean and glorified human will become. And he said the geography part climaxes with the revelation of just how small hell really is and how enormous heaven is. And I thought that's a really good way of summarizing the book. I would agree. I don't think we can add much to that, apart from to say that for the rest of the season, we've got a few more After Hours episodes, and then Matt and I will be back to discuss the theology of Prince Caspian, and we will then be back in season three when we're doing Till We Have Faces, and it's going to be great. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. It- there's, that, there's that spiritual pride kicking back in. <laughs> it's going to be our biggest challenge. It's not a book we just, we, it's going to require more forethought oh. <laughs> from our part. I thought you said that my spiritual pride was going to be our greatest challenge. <laughs> no, going through, to, not everything is about you, David. Oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but as a reminder for everyone, we have that giveaway. So Peter Kraft, an incredible author, he has written, how many books do you think he's written? Dozens? Is that oh, fair to say? I think it's over 30. Okay, over 30 books. This guy is so brilliant. David has a signed copy of a book for him. It's going to the listeners. And what we ask of you is write a review. So not just rate us, but write a review. Remember what you wrote. And then in a few weeks, we are going to randomly select one of any of our reviews. That means our previous ones as well. And we will distribute the copy. So don't forget to do that. Even if it's not a five star, that's accepted. David and I will humbly take feedback. It's for my sanctification. I'm okay with it. That's exactly right. I'll be fine. Speaking of bribing people with books, uh, have you got anything in the mail recently? (laughs) I guess the one other thing I have to add here is David, for people who've listened to the last episode, will know that I gave him a hard time because he played me, deceived me, into thinking he only got two copies, uh, signed copies by Peter Kraft. He secretly was a saint. He got a third copy and sent it to me in the mail. And I I open it and it says, as if I'd forget, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) So thank you very much for that, David. I am very excited. The book, by the way, is Between Heaven and Hell, a dialogue somewhere beyond death with John F. Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, and Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley. There you go. He, He was an author. And so all three men died on the same day. 
So Lewis imagines what that conversation might have been like between the three of them in the afterlife. So I thought it was a good follow-on to The Great Divorce. <laughs> Did you say Lewis imagines, or you mean Peter Kreeft? I think I heard Lewis, but I was half listening. <laughs> but yes, in the in the last episode, when you assumed that I didn't get to your book, <laughs> I thought, do I rub it in his face now or later? It would be worse to rub it in later. I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> your, your, your ability to delay gratification is impressive. In that moment, you had to accept me giving you a hard time and just lumping me in with everyone else and not not respecting me as a co-host. You got to play the long game. In the Christian life, it's heaven. In the podcasting game with you, sometimes it's just a couple of weeks when I get to rub it in your face. I love it. And so on that note, uh, please join us back next week when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>